Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show Classic Reviews. I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today to talk about Tukey Buki, we have Michael Snydell. Good morning. Bill Graham. Woo. And our special guest for today, Scout Tafoya. Greetings. Back for the first time since we reviewed Sicario way back in... Whenever Sicario came out, <laughs> what have you been doing? Fifteen, maybe. It was it was twenty fifteen. It was the thick of the New York Film Festival. I've been well, sir. I've been uh, I've been trying to keep busy. <laughs> and how has that been going for you? Oh, you know, <laughs> you you wake up at uh, at seven in the morning to rewatch uh, Tuki Buki for podcasts. That's what happens when you try to keep busy. <laughs> Oof, that is very busy. Um, so. <laughs> Before we go on, why don't you tell uh, the people at home uh, a little bit about yourself and where they can find your work and, and all that good stuff. Oh, that's very kind of you. Um, so you can find me on uh, Twitter at, at on honors underscore zombie. I am the honors zombie. Um, I have a number of feature films you can find on Vimeo on demand. Um, they're not too difficult to find. Um I have a an extensive IMDb page that I'm sure impresses everybody. <laughs> um, you can find me on Letterboxd. You can find me on Vimeo. I have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash honorzombie, no underscore on that one, um, where I post the video essays uh, specifically for the um, brave, brave souls who are... Uh, privately funding my life. That's very kind of them. Um, I do a lot of really uh, uh, exciting work that I'm super proud of there. I have a bunch of series, one on sort of oddball westerns, one on um, uh, 90s action movies, and uh, uh, one on character actors. I'm looking for new stuff all the time and constantly pitching new video essay series. You can find me on rogerebert.com fairly regularly, doing The Unloved, which is probably... If you've heard my name, that's why. And if you haven't, you can just keep on not knowing who I am. <laughs> well, that is certainly keeping busy. So. Yes. <laughs> um, speaking of Patreon, we too have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash the film stage show. Go there to help support what we do. And uh, give us your money. It allows us to do stuff like this particular classic episode. Uh, it's only yeah. because of our Patreon supporters that we are able to find the psychic and emotional energy to record extra podcasts on top of our already busy podcast recording schedule. <laughs> We're also brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. <clears throat> Every day, Mubi introduces a new film that you then have 30 days to watch, so you have a constantly rotating selection of 30 films to check out. They've got some great stuff coming up. They have a series, Acting Like a Child, which uh, highlights acting by talented children, including The Fallen Idol from 1948. And it is uh, directed by Carol Reed, who had done The Third Man, which is uh, you almost universally believed to be one of the best movies ever made, I think. 
So if you would like a free 30-day trial of Mubi to understand how great the service is, go to mubi.com slash filmstage and get a 30-day free trial on us. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. Uh, other random stuff before we get into our review. You can find us on Twitter at Filmstage Show. Facebook, search for The Filmstage Show. Email us, podcast at filmstage.com. And, of course, you can go to filmstage.com and comment on the pages that these episodes are posted under. I think that that is about everything. Uh, anyone else have anything to add? Any cool stuff going on in your lives? We weren't able to get out and see any of the wide-ish release movies this week. It was the strangest thing. Somehow, in our three corners of America, there was no single movie that played in all three of them. Wild. Yeah, so we couldn't it, it go was out and see We couldn't oh, that's see right. Isle of Dogs. And uh, God knows we weren't going to talk about Pacific Rim. <laughs> oh, why not? <laughs> I respect myself just, just enough to not go see Pacific Rim Uprising. I have to say, though, a peek into our, our uh, Film Stage Slack channel, it seems like there was one movie that was particularly the winner that a lot of listeners were talking about, which was uh, Steven Soderbergh's Unsane. A lot of people were talking about that uh, this past or this past weekend. So I I hope it's good. I'm excited to see it. Fan fan of Steven Soderbergh. I don't know no. if we're talking about oh, it, but big big at, talk, at any point. big talk. A fan <laughs> fan of that that indie filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, he's, he's, I it's hard to pin Soderbergh down. We're not here to talk about Soderbergh, but we could probably sure. talk about just him as a human. He's being. He's an oddball. Yeah. An artist for a while. But we are here, however, to talk about Tukibuki, the 1973 film from director Jabil Diop Mbete. And, um. Nailed it. I feel like I should applaud you. (laughs) We were all all watching you like judges watching a diver. (laughs) Now we know that he's going to try a triple axel here. He's never been able to land one in the past. Let's watch. It's tough to get that D and that J and that B right in a row right there. Let's see how he does. And Nine yet, point two. And yet, and yet. <laughs> I um, I ought to be good at pronouncing names because I pronounce a lot of obscure Russian names all the time. But uh, I don't know. Just I like for know. fun. Yeah. I just sit down <laughs> with new a phone book Brian. that I bought from Jeez. Moscow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I'm like, you've given me a cigarette in the call. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. <laughs> anyway. Uh. So yes, Tukibuki. <laughs> um. Let's uh let's let's talk about this. For anyone who's curious, it's available on the Criterion Collection and is currently streaming on Filmstruck. And it is the story of uh two lovers in uh Dakar, Senegal, who decide that they're gonna they're gonna escape. They're gonna go to Paris. Uh ironically for the express purpose of then coming back <laughs> so that they can be seen as big shots who went to Paris. It's it is, a tale as old as time. Well, yeah, I mean, almost any... It's funny, almost any escape fantasy that anyone has involves then coming back and being yes. praised as a god. <laughs> it's very true. It's, uh, it's funny, I just watched for the first time Young Adult yesterday, and it's exactly the same goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, everybody just... Because what, what ultimately is the point of success if you cannot rub the noses of your former <laughs> tormentors in your newfound wealth and... Uh, uh, fortune. Yeah, and it's it's that what is it like revenge? The best revenge is live a life well lived. 
That's right. That's right. Live but it's like fuck that. Only if, well, yeah, it, but that's only good revenge if everyone sees you living that great life, which is why exactly. Facebook and Instagram are so popular. That's exactly what I was about to say. I was about yeah. to say. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, it's, and, and I think that this film, interestingly, in its, in its uh, sort of parade of indelible things and its amazing uh, uh, look at fashion and, and the lives and stuff like that has a kind of a proto Instagram quality to it, which is maybe the least interesting way to think about this film, but, but it, it is, is the way to get the millennials. So, well, uh, that's exactly, there you go. That's how we're going to draw them in. You fucking mm-hmm. kids. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating film and it's a gorgeous, uh, it's, it's, it's every viewing, is rewarding because you see things in a slightly different way than you did the last time. I mean, the the, the montage is so sort of perfectly rhythmic and, and borderline assaultive at times, and it's and it's it's just got this identity, this sort of bizarre spiritual cinematic quality that uh, I mean, even Jibril's other films don't necessarily quite have the kind of growling, humming power that this one does, even though they're all wonderful. Um, I've 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 been lucky enough to to be able to find all of his seven films and each is, you know, as terrific as the last, but Tukibuki endures um for a reason. It's 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 a very special film even by his incredible standards. I mean, it helps of course that it's the only one that's been properly um restored, restored. thanks to Scorsese, of course. Um but uh yeah, it's 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 the sort of it's it's the promise of his early work fulfilled, and it's also, I mean, it was it's like powerful enough to stand in for the potential of an entire continent of untold stories. That basically all you would ever need to do is show this film to somebody, and nobody would ever need convincing that African cinema is rich and varied and wonderful. Like it's 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 an insanely accomplished film, and. It was funny. The first time I saw it was obviously like I imagine so many other people when movie first um, came on the, the scene. Movie. So to speak. Um, <laughs> it was. Uh, I can't remember if they were still calling out the auteurs at this time or not. Um, but it was one of the first titles they offered up for streaming. Um, was the four of the original Scorsese World Cinema Foundation uh, films, but also uh, Marco Bellocchio's The Wedding Director, a very strange film. Um, but I watched all five of those because they were free. And then something like the next day went into class uh, at Emerson and uh, there uh, it was an African cinema class. And on the syllabus was uh, Tukibuki and a whole thing on Jabril and, and Senegalese cinema. Um, so we watched it again right away. And it was just like watching it for the, I mean, obviously I'd just seen it like three days earlier, but I was just so excited to see it again. And just the image of, you know, the, the motorcycle attack with the bullhorns and the mm, cattle mm-hmm. roping and that incredible upsetting, um, you know, slaughterhouse sequence, which reminded me of, um, uh, obviously of, uh, the sang de bet, but also of, uh, Maitress, the Barbe Schroeder film from a few years later. It, it, it's sort of got this awesome thing in between landmarks of French cinema in between the new wave and what the new wave would become, you know, that clearly Jabril and, um, uh, Osman Semban, who was the other sub-Saharan African giant uh, of the cinema, they they were enthralled to France in a good many ways. And it's funny, Raoul Peck um, still talks about how how lucky he was that he wasn't reliant on French money because you look at what happened to guys like that when they were so reliant on it. The legend for a long time was that Jabril um, 
basically uh, found himself a French patron who just like paid him to drink himself to death. <laughs> um, Jesus. Which is uh, nice. Yeah, I know. That's it's, the it's dream, a, though. <laughs> More so than fortune. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then you go back to your hometown and rub it in everybody's face. Yeah, mm-hmm. check it out. This Frenchman's paying me to drink whiskey. <laughs> Yeah, I had a, I had a very um, incredible uh, professor at Emerson, Claire Andrade Watkins, who's a a, um, a, a filmmaker uh, professor from Cape Verde, um, and she knew most of these guys. I don't know how close her relationship was with Jabril, but she knew an awful lot of like intimate biographical details about him, which struck me that you know it made sense to me that they had known each other, but I don't know. Anyway, um, she you know, made us acutely aware of his influence and his genius. Um, and then all you had to do was watch the movies. We watched Hyenas and Tukey Boogie in the class. And uh, it's, it's you know, it, it was like nothing else we'd ever seen because it was. I mean, it was, you know, you go for so long watching Euro-American or even Japanese mm. uh, narrative cinema, and then you see this stuff, and it's it's unlike anything on Earth. I mean, there's obviously the traces of Godard in there, you know, that mm-hmm. he's that he's got that French new wave sort of uh, full frontal assault on your senses and on the editing bay, but it's still, I mean, it's it's like a complete bolt from the blue. There really is nothing else like this film. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because, like, uh, upon watching this film for the first time last night, um, <laughs> it was, it, you know, the, the French new wave influences are <clears throat> pretty obvious, and um, in, a, in a good way. <laughs> it, mm. it, it is, it's this vibrant... Uh, crazy kind of hold on for dear life style of of editing and, and narrative, but the thing that kind of drew me in the most was just the fact that um, this is one of those movies that proves what a brutal cinema can be into like another place. Mm-hmm. Because I just don't really feel like I've ever seen a movie that that depicts any part of Africa with the kind of insight and normalcy and and like pureness of vision as this movie like yeah you're just uh, like thinking thinking back on some movies that have taken place in any part of africa and i've got like mm-hmm. all right we've got we've got oh, egypt boy. in uh indiana jones which is not great uh we got <laughs> uh the constant gardener which um is I, a movie that i like but is you know it, it it's kind of poverty porny and then you've yeah. got like uh, Black Panther, which is a fine film, but you know that place isn't real. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just at a loss. And then you have things like Blood Diamond and um, like Safe House, where it's just like it, it. It feels like they could have happened anywhere, or they're trying to make a wider point. But this is a movie that's just like, hey, this is home. Like, check it yeah. out. And that is the kind <laughs> of that's the kind like, when people talk about things like representation or letting other voices be heard like that's kind of what they're going for is like this is a story that could only really be told by this person in this way and have this level of impact well that first scene is almost is almost so perfect in the sense that it begins with this very like idyllic and in some ways familiar vision of what we expect uh like assumptions about africa to be you know with the i have is that oxen or can someone tell me exactly what animal that is? Not even gonna, a, not even going to try. Right. <laughs> Anyways, it's a, it's a horned beast. The, the horned livestock that they 
that they are, you know, wrangling. And again, it's this idyllic scene and then cutting right into this slaughterhouse, which is just an incredibly graphic scene. And and it's just a small thing. But my partner is a vegetarian. So I am really (laughs) glad that she was not here this weekend to see this movie. Oh, my wife caught a glimpse of that scene and was just like, all right, I'm going to go on a run. (laughs) Yeah, that's there's there's a, there's a rich tradition of slaughterhouses in cinema, sure. and I like I I as a like vegan, it should bug me more, but it's I don't know, it's like it's done so well so much of the time, and it's in so many of my favorite films that I'm just kind of like, well, I mean, listen, if I like have to put up with cows being used to feed most people, I can put up with it being used <laughs> to like make one of the greatest films of all time. So, <laughs> well, um, I mean, I guess in some way. You know, you're you're not a live viewer. You are watching it, obviously, post. So it's one of those things where it's like I can't like my emotions can be spent here. But are they useful for that that animal that's being slaughtered right now? No. So that (laughs) that animal's been long been dead and long been eaten. So even if that animal hadn't been slaughtered there, it's been like, what, 40 some years like that? It would have died of natural causes by now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the thing, too, is. I also just—I was curious if if that was like a cow that had been selected to die on film, or if he was just like, "All right, now I'm just going to walk in a slaughterhouse." And I—I like, I have—I have to assume the, the, it, like the latter. It's—it's—it's it's, it's that thing that you almost always feel, especially when you're watching like a, a French New Wave film, where you're just like, "How much of this was just like right them out in the street like doing this, and mm-hmm. like some of the things sure. you see being." being like raw and real and i just i just sort of assumed that like he he was in a slaughterhouse and this is what they were doing and that the cow that we the cow or the ox that we saw die was then processed into food for someone no i have to assume that that's that's true i mean like with most of these things like with apocalypse now it's not like the thing didn't go to you know feed some people (laughs) you know but i think the watch though yeah I'm sorry, I got us I got us derailed on the on the animal slaughter and there's plenty of that. But what I what I want to no, say briefly your, your about that scene. grammatical point is well taken of course. <laughs> is that uh yeah, just going from that idyllic I, I keep going back to that word. Idyllic vision of Africa to the slaughterhouse and then you know this kind of large panoramic uh view of, you know, Senegal which is like huts with like garbage on top and and then it just kind of like in that beginning part it skips back and forth between these this industrial and this primal and it's like right away like oh you think africa is this no it's also this but it's also this but you know it's not also just a place that is under oppression it's also some people are just shitty here some people (laughs) like it's like it's It's, it, it, it it's making and to present, as Brian was saying, like uh, such a normal, multifaceted, like uh, multivalent version of like the mundane, but also presented in such like this disruptive way. Like I, I kind of love how they'll start with a start with a shot. And like at this point in cinema, I'm so used to, you know, spending like a minute watching someone walk up a hill or something. And that has its own rewards. But this will be like a person's trying to walk up the hills and then it will go into a montage of like five different city streets and, uh, you know, four different scenarios and then go back to that. Like there's it's such a strange experience watching time continually be condensed. Um, yeah, it, it, it's also. Uh, I mean, it's 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 instructive and rewarding to 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 think of a time when 
you know, these tricks and these ideas of, of montage were still being discovered. You know, you think about how much further cinema had to go at this point and how still fresh and new this movie feels in its decisions about chronology and stuff like that. Um, to your point about the, the industrial, you know, uh, scenes of Dakar, um, he, he, he has this really, really, uh, interesting and sort of unforgiving view of the slums of the city that he first introduces in his first two shorts or his first two films, uh, 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 Contra City and Badu Boy, which are all about, you know, scrappers, people trying to make their way in an incredibly impoverished area, which gets to this broader thing that essentially his cinema is about, and his life was ultimately um, similarly enthralled to France and the influence of French money and what France as the, you know, colonizer did to so much of Africa, um, which of course explains, you know, the whole, the need to go to Paris, that Paris and it's, you know, fatuous aristocratic class, um, you know, tried to colonize and, 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 and bankrupt so much of this town that they wanted to transform. Um, and yet its specter still hangs over everything. I mean, it's that beautiful song that you keep hearing repeated on the soundtrack. It's all they can think about. It's, it's this, you know, cloud that hangs over everything they do. And all they can think to do is go to France and become rich like the French who ruined their land and then come back, you know, showing these, you know, aristocratic French uh, outfits and, you know, their cars and the boats and just this, you know, lucre that they associate with the place that, uh, uh, you know, was responsible for so much of the misery that happens around them. And it's the reason that so much of Dakar doesn't look like the idyllic, you know, that it is the slaughterhouse, basically, <laughs> that it's not... You know, it's 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 not the beautiful, idyllic, National Geographic version of the continent. It's, you know, it's this aluminum town. It's this, you know, tin shack and, and boards, you know, this, this sort of, like, hastily assembled place where everybody argues and everybody, you know, defaults on their payments and everybody sort of has to understand that poverty is everywhere and nobody can pay anything on time. So, on the one hand, it's, you know, it, it, it gets away with all this sort of, you know, neorealistic view of, uh, uh, you know, his home, because he's doing it in this sort of self-styled, cool, post-French New Wave kind of way. That you're, you know, you're being told some really hideous things, but you're being told it in this unflinchingly awesome and, uh, and, and, and disquieting, uh, amazing style. It's, it's kind of funny to think about what in the 90s when we were, you know, sort of coming up as cinephiles, what was considered cool when this was something was out there and <laughs> just being kept from us because nobody wanted to spend any money to freaking keep your Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, basically. You know, I mean, that's the thing. There's nothing in Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs that wasn't done here first. And yet, because it also has some really fucked up things to say about the colonial influence, and of course, France, which is supposed to be the mecca of, and birthplace of cinema, which has done so much to, you know, turn half the world into a fucking shantytown. <laughs> um, it's my favorite know, thing to say, is whenever people are talking about... Um the state of the world and they're always kind of blaming america i'm like look you know we're not giving enough shit to france or belgium yeah exactly right <laughs> you know let's just let's, let's turn around let's really look at who did this you know <laughs> what was heart of darkness about that's right um <laughs> 
it is it's it's it, there's a point that that I was thinking about in this movie in the visitor um oh god a, a that point. fucking thing yeah <laughs> but there's a point where a woman says she's from Senegal and a a white woman says oh I was in Cape Town the other year and she's like oh that's great <laughs> and then her friend asks her like how far away is Senegal from Cape Town okay, and she's okay. like oh like I don't know like 2000 miles <laughs> yeah and it gives it it, we're not used to this kind of granular look at the continent of Africa and like really seeing, you know, that this is a place with like its own independent culture and lifestyles and work and architecture. And it's, um, it's interesting to see it, especially as they kind of move up through their social strata, um, to the point that they go to a wealthy, uh, homosexual man's house and then go to like the actual port and the travel agency and just seeing all the different types of of people and places that are in this one city yeah it's, um, it's yeah it's, it's true it's bracing. It's, it's yeah i mean it's it's it, it, it highlights as as if we need more of an excuse for uh, you know or more of a reason how much the voice of this othered you know, exoticized place was actually needed because without cinema from anywhere, I mean, we're stuck with the, you know, the fucking constant gardeners and hearts of darknesses where it, it remains foreign. And, and, you know, and you think about as so much as I hate, uh, what's it? Uh, uh, blue is the warmest color. There's, you know, the wave that that guy rode of, of, you know, new independent African cinematic voices. I mean, that is so important. And it's also completely insane that on the world stage right now, there are, what, six, seven, you know, African filmmakers that anybody who's even, like, plugged in hardcore to world cinema could name for you. I mean, it's 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 kind of amazing in, in a lot of ways that one of the few working African filmmakers is Mati Diop, who is Jabril's niece, you know what I mean? Like, we still haven't gotten this far out that we are not in the same, you know what I mean? It's like the right. Hillary Clinton to Bill Clinton thing. It's like, we still have the same names in our mouths when it comes to the broad scope of African cinema. And as of, you know, this podcast, every single country on the continent has had a film made there, and nobody fucking knows about it, because there's just no money in distribution, and there's no push from anybody in this country to, like, make sure that we're actually seeing all this stuff. I mean, you know, there are people who joke about Nollywood and all that, but I've seen a lot of that stuff, and it's fascinating, you know? It's wild, certainly, but it's it's undeniably interesting, and it's more interesting than half of the garbage that gets made here. I'd rather watch that than a Lifetime movie. I'm saying that. There's actually a lot of good Lifetime movies. I was about to say, first of all, if you're drunk, a Lifetime movie is your Yeah, best they're great. Uh, yeah. Second of all, it if is you're hungover, kind of good, too. Well, yeah. I just watched it, the Christmas train with Dermot Mulroney a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Bill, go go ahead. Uh, it is interesting that you're mentioning that and how how kind of secluded that that cinema has still been, uh, especially here in, in North America. But I think part of that just goes back to North America's just inherent disregard of anything that's subtitled. And so it's always curious to me if any of this stuff would have any more purchase and hold over here if it was in English. And that's not to say that they have to speak English to make a film that needs to be successful over here, but mm -hmm. it is a curious case where we do import a few films from other countries 
that are in English and they do have success here. Um, and so it, it's curious because, you know, it, it just continues on this, this weird trajectory of we export so much cinema that ends up being dubbed in so many other countries you know because a lot of a, a lot of the rest of the world doesn't necessarily speak english and so if you go watch it over in france or something like that you might find one that's in that's been dubbed or not even dubbed but uh has uh has uh what can i think of it uh subtitles sure. and so it's just it's so curious that we just flatly reject uh subtitles at all well not over only here. subtitles bill but like it- the the most recent analog I can think of to this movie would be something like Good Time, and I like that movie didn't yeah. make a shit ton of money either. Like even though it had Robert Pattinson in it, like I, I think that there is at the heart of of America at least you know is what I can speak of since I live here. Um, there's there people go to the movies not to view art or see something interesting. They do it because it's a thing to do and it's fun. And it's like a commodification. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, people, it's gonna, it's getting to the point now where every week you're going to be able to say, we should just go out and see that Marvel movie um, yeah. because they're sticking around so long and there's so many of them coming out. And I like, that's kind of what people want to do. Like they don't yeah, want to sit true. with anything. So it's, it's not like subtitles is definitely a barrier of entry, but if you were to remake this movie shot for shot, um, same place, same you know, basic visual style and everything, but put it in English. I, I think that you're still looking at a theater full of empty seats just because it's it, it's it's made to fry your brain. And yeah. people don't want to get their brain fried. Mm-hmm. Even me watching it in my house, in the comfort of my own home, there were times when I was watching it and I just said, I'm not sure if this is a dream sequence or not right now. <laughs> but I'm sure. the even- person who says that like with a little bit of awe and respect even as my brain is like no brian i have no idea what's happening in the active reality of this film and i refuse i refuse to go on um but i can say screw you brain i'm into this like a person who's looking at what to do on a saturday with like their friends is gonna say look we can all go be disappointed by infinity war and or or we could go see Tuki Buki and like maybe one of us will love it and the others will hate it and we'll never speak to each other again. There's, mm-hmm. there's a sort of implicit, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, implicit uh, aesthetic elitism that is also at work here, which is essentially that you know things need to look nice on film. I mean, the idea, you know, sure. watching an ugly movie, quote unquote, is not anything that people get psyched about. It's it's they want things to be better than 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 they understand them in their own lives. That images need to. Uh, be transportive but exclusively in a sort of uh, upwardly mobile way i mean you think about all those marvel things and where do they mostly take place in expensive apartments and nice spaceships and you know pleasure domes and stuff like that um which which goes back yeah which which goes back to brian's point about good time which is of course not a film that's that's looking upward it is looking in you know inside and it is it is at once dirty and grungy and gross and hey, so first of all i'm you know. from that place Watch yourself. <laughs> talking about queens yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm there now yeah man so you know what i mean but yeah bill yeah. i mean like good time is the movie that took one of the most adored young men in in america robert pattinson and made him gross 
Yeah. Morally yes. and physically gross. <laughs> Morally gross. I want to. No. I want to pause here. I, I I'm going to make a potentially a generalization, but I'm I'm hoping maybe it could start a little like larger discussion. I, one, I think I don't think good time is potentially. I did actually write down good time in my notes, but I don't think it's a particularly productive uh, description of this. More because I think good time is uh, getting in a lot of. Um, larger concepts about uh, social issues and things like that within the format of a thriller. Like it's, it's a pretty palatable movie, but I I think that Tuki Buki weirdly what this reminds me of specifically of what Scott was saying about uh, this, this aesthetic elitism is that I think that a lot of the problem with the American movies and even the things we import uh, is that they're consistently in the mode of Hollywood things that we're familiar with. Right. And so in the mm-hmm. sense that so many things we see, like, even as they are different and there are, you know, a- auteurs or creators or, you know, a- a- any number of in, uh, other factors, external factors that make things different. I'm not saying that there's not a huge variety in uh, American cinema, but rather something like Tukibuki feels so uh, fundamentally skewed and altered in a way that I think a lot of, I, again, I'm making a generalization, that uh, some cinema audiences wouldn't know what to do with this in the same way that I, I brought up Unsane briefly uh, earlier. Sure. And I have to say that... Uh, let me tell you, when I go to a movie alone, I generally try to put my headphones in as quick as possible. But I was kind of curious to hear what people were saying <laughs> when I was walking out. And uh, there was that awkward silence of people not knowing what to make of a movie that was uh, deliberately shot on an iPhone, deliberately murky, deliberate, you know, with the sure. lighting to feel grungy and for everything to feel, uh, you know, to feel different from a regular Hollywood mode, let alone when you see stars on screen. So like, mm-hmm. that's, that's a small example, but I guess my point was that like, I think the thing about, uh, Tuki Buki especially is that, even in a way that's, you know, some of I think some of even French New Wave is more approachable than something like this because, as Brian was saying, you didn't know whether some things were a dream sequence. There are parts of this that are, uh, you know, a fantasy. Parts of this that are fantasy that are also still skewed with like a neo realism, which is bizarre. Like the, the even when you think about fantasy sequences, they're always about. Uh, the sense of optimism and the best possible uh, version of reality. And what I find so fascinating and so sad about this movie is that even the large fantasy of this movie is still about, like, characters being left out. Characters, like, having to run away from, like, dangerous situations. Like, there's something so... um, like restrictive about their world 
or not their world, I'm sorry, but uh, about their experiences that even the possibility of getting rich couldn't just happen through some kind of like pleasant fluke. It had to happen through them stealing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Well, it's, it's, it's in this regard, I think it's, it's, it's best understood or, or maybe best uh, uh, consumed as a kind of a uh, flip side, a, a more um, explosive and psychedelic um, B-side to uh, Black Girl by Semben, sure. which is again about the corrupting influence of you know French culture on people whom France has disenfranchised in um, France as well. <laughs> in France, of course, no, it's perfect in that way. That basically, yeah. <laughs> you know, she's she's literally made to be the other in their own home. They bring you know the the. Their, their, you know, their own private colonized person into their own home, essentially to consistently feel as though Flavor. they maintain <laughs> that colonial control over something that they will never understand, that they barely see. And here, you know, it's it's people who are living with the unspoken. It's it's almost as if you know the colonized mindset has been cast like a spell on these two, and you know that that they're they're ambitions are deliberately stunted by what they understand, which is a French definition of success, which is to say there's money there. They know that there's money there because there's no money here. And if those people have it, then it must be got. And, and so that's the, you know, that's essentially the search is this, it's this, you know, they want to magic themselves into these new clothes to wear the clothes of their own oppressors to feel some measure of control that they don't in their own lives. I mean, you see them with their wonderful thrift store clothing. I mean, you know, the, I'm saying thrift store, but you know what I mean? That, that great sure. uh, fatigue jacket she's wearing again, <laughs> further evidence of, you know, the, the, the colonizer. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I just love also the incredible outfits on that gang of uh, revolutionaries who beat up the... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, their clothes are amazing. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, again, this thing. It's it's this, you know, they, they, they look like the 70s version of the American black revolutionary, you know, with the, the plaid jackets and the sunglasses and the suits and all that. It's, 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 it's this two poles of, of pretend idealized others. It's wild. Um, and again, that, that this movie conjures these spaces of uncertain and, you know, hyper, uh, surreal realities that it's, it's both a, a dream of, uh, success vis-a-vis, you know, the, 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 you know, the way that you can imagine success in Senegal directly under, you know, the thumb of the French, but also, you know, you're, you're, you're just, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's transporting because everything seems like it could be either an addition to the fantasy or something that may actually happen to them because it does seem like their lives are nightmarish. But even their moments where it's clear that things are actually happening, I'm thinking specifically of the, of the love scene by the sea where her hand is on the, the odd symbol on the back of his motorcycle. You know, the, their lives are defined by these deliberately outsized and, and gorgeous and singular images that when they take these flights into, uh, into fantasy and into, uh, you know, this, this uh, fake version of their wealthier uh, alternate realities, it's, it is tough to keep track of what's really happening and what's not. And I think that's very much on purpose. Um, and it's, you know, the, the, it's the first vision of wealth in his, uh, cinema. Badubuoy and Contra City are both about living in impoverished areas. And so here is this, you know, this, this 
brilliantly colored, um, you know, gorgeously edited and, you know, just all this beautiful natural scenery put to use as, as, as both, you know, yes, we live in uh, striking, startling, gorgeous uh, landscape, but it's also used to further our visual understanding of them. I, I think about the, when they're in, when they're doing that, when they're having sex by the, the sea, it cuts to the ocean as if that's sort of mm-hmm. the most natural coupling of wave and rock is also them. And, 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 and they are part of the land in that way that, you know, no matter whether they go to France, they're still going to be tied to this place. Um, and in a very real sense, because even going to France, they're going to be, be beholden to an incredible French racism because everybody's going to, you know, it was, as bad as America in the in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when, you know, the Jim Crow laws were coming down. Um, so it's, you know, it, that that unreality is such an awesome sort of uh, productive uh, way to think about just life, just the, the experience of being somebody living in the shadow of French rule. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought, so somebody else could take over. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned the sex scene, because I think nudity is kind of used in, I guess, two or three <clears throat> scenes, and it's like a, a communion with, like, the earth and with where they live. Like, that scene where, um, oh boy, where Maury, sorry, where Maury is standing up in the car and <laughs> just, like, discards mm. all of his clothes yes. in this, like... One of my favorite shots. <laughs> yeah, like, in this moment of, like, total freedom and, you know, elation and uh, exhilaration. And, and that whole scene, like... I, I, just as w- with the the sex scene is like a, this this moment where they are you know free from the strains of their everyday life and it, it mm. is like evoking and it's like those are some of the few moments and in a, in a more pure way that something like uh, you know, Black Panther <laughs> it tries to evoke <laughs> like the mythic Africa or even something like uh, Belly. I think of like. Uh, Belly sure, where Nas sure. talks about wanting to go to Africa and go to the homeland and a lot of like this American idealism about going to Africa, like those moments. Well, that was, uh, yes, I think about it's funny <laughs> before Dave Chappelle became even more insane, you know, <laughs> he, he would go and do these interviews where he talked about when he backed off of doing Chappelle's show. He said, I went to Africa, you know, Africa, <laughs> Africa. He didn't say I went to Senegal. <laughs> I went to Chad. I went to Niger. I he just said Africa as if that was meant to stand in for the whole. And I was just sure. like, well, what is that? What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. You went to Africa. Where did you go? <laughs> but that was like enough of an explanation that no interviewer ever seemed to want to ask him a follow up. Which is to like, say, oh, that's a continent, not a country. Where did you go? Um, I had a friend once who said that they wanted to go to Europe, and I said, "Oh, cool. Where?" And they're like, "Europe." And I was like, "I understand that, but like every country, or like just the ones that speak English, or France." And they're like, "I just want to travel Europe," and I was like, "Okay, this is going nowhere." Yep. I hope you have a great time in Europe. <laughs> there's a great, there's a mystery science theater gag about that for Danger Death Ray. Where they're talking about, they can't figure out what anybody's accent is. And they're just like, oh, what country is this taking place again in? Uh, Europe. Um, anyway, now to go back to the car ride for a minute, there's a thing in there that I always loved, which is that the back, you know, the wheel well 
on the back of the car looks like the Captain America shield, sure. um, <laughs> mm-hmm. which sort of hints at the the kind of second handness of I mean down to the down to the clothes that they wear the second hand uh, signifiers of film culture in this. So you've got that, which is you know to people in '73 when they would have been seeing this likely would at least have a passing familiarity with something like Easy Rider. And I think about the incredible use of like the color red and the greens and the yellows in this has this feel of Nicholas Ray, which of course would then filter right into Godard. So it's it's amazing to think how much you know. Uh, film culture travels through images rather than through word of mouth. Because I doubt that any of the things in this come from, you know, somebody having described an idea to Jabril. He was a very intuitive um, filmmaker. He was very much, you know, he, he could he could bring things out in color and in landscape. I mean, you think about all those amazing shots of kids running in the street and the soldiers and the you know, I mean, all the all the stuff with the revolutionaries and that just, again, this incredible shot of him driving through the countryside, giving the sort of what we understand as the Black Panther salute as he's driven through town naked. You know, like it's he's he's a visual filmmaker who thinks in these in, in just these completely singular, indelible images that nobody else would be able to describe life the way that he did because there were other senegalese filmmakers i mean sim ben was a much more literal filmmaker he he relied much less on montage and on uh symbols and shorthand um he was you know his his screenplays were were very much uh symbolic i mean you know they had they had devices and and things that stood in for the larger problems of living in senegal but he directed them in a much more um uh simple and theatrical way um he was sort of you know, it's 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 like it's always tempting to do the Godard Truffaut split, but that's not exactly right. He's there's there there are pieces to, to what he did that almost remind me a little of Bergman, his his love of interior rooms and the simple the simplicity of of lighting uh, the you know the, the the sort of the single room apartments in in Dakar and places like that. But um, you know, the, the the sudden appearance of things in Tukibuki is very much. You know, that's that's what he did so well. When suddenly you see the couple in their finery in the car, when where before you just see him stripping his clothes off, and then suddenly there's a cut to them in the car with the motorcade, mm-hmm. and you understand exactly <laughs> the fantasy that they're living out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that brings up a point that I kind of want to touch on and, and ask about, because, uh, you know, he apparently made, made multiple movies before this, film in particular and i was curious you know i looked at the budget um it was one of the first things that kind of came up and i noticed it was like something like thirty thousand dollars or something like that right um and you know i I have no concept of what that money was even like back in 1973 um and it's interesting because what i noticed again and again was were shots that were either repeated or shots that were uh obviously taken and shot kind of out of place you know that motorcade sequence is obviously of of some kind of existing footage that he had interspliced with footage kind of angled up towards their faces of them mm-hmm. waving you know so it's very obvious you know, uh, even even as kind of someone that doesn't observe a lot of cinema, to be able to recognize that those shots are not necessarily shot at the same time. You know, um, right. this crowd is not necessarily for them. You That's never exactly see them right. actually inter- interact with the crowd. And so I'm curious how much of that is specifically something that he is trying to 
add more to that kind of dreamlike quality to those sequences or if he just literally did not have a budget to be able to even kind of fake his way through that process like uh, you know how much of of some of these shots are intentionally uh repeated or intentionally out of out of context for the purpose of of his film narrative versus how much of it is just a restriction of his budget well i think um, that um you know just to jump in on that i mean like the one of the reasons that uh psycho looks the way it does is because hitchcock was working with his tv crew that he used for alfred hitchcock presents i, I think that like a, a consummate artist will look at what they have and then figure out what they can do with it and so that the um the budget restriction becomes like another tool rather than mm-hmm. like a hand tied behind their back i, I like because i was thinking about that because i'm like you know i don't know much about senegal but i am assuming <laughs> that he did not get many city streets to close down and like a police escort and all these cars <laughs> to shoot this scene um because you couldn't even do that now in an american city and so i was like i assume this is all footage that he either took himself at, at another parade or or what? But I, I I I just personally really loved the way that that kind of added to the otherworldliness. It's as though someone were trying to picture their own victory parade, and their only their only concept of what that could look like was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, <laughs> like keeping mm-hmm. the floats mm-hmm. and the balloons, and just that idea and the way that it's implemented here. You know, I was curious, obviously, but I, I just worked so well that my brain was kind of like, "This is awesome." <laughs> yeah, it's true, and it's and it's funny that you say that. That idea of the sort of you know the the found fantasy in a way that that not only can you know he make use of what goes on around him. I mean, you know, you think with your with your. To your point about streets closing, I mean, Senegal didn't have film culture. It's not as though anybody riding around with a camera was going to be seen as anything out of the ordinary. You know what I mean? Like, there was no there was no understanding that, oh, these people are here to make a movie. That was not something that happened with any regularity on the streets. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, yeah, no, you're right that the... the, the the motorcade and the and the military parade and all that stuff and eventually you know they 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 find themselves at what appears to be an embassy at the end of that parade um it's it's very much you know again it's 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 such a narrow definition of success because there was such a narrow like idea of how to become beloved or rich and famous and you know the idea that you know as soon as he gets his giant wad of uh, enormous uh, bills he starts paying off the like one person in his life that he owes money to, you know, like that's sure. Who then it's, calls it's, him like Maury the well educated? <laughs> exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's the most, you know, the not the most base song. fantasy that anyone has. It's like, man, that person thinks I'm an idiot. I'm going to come back. They're going to call me well educated. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's mm-hmm. it, you know because there just wasn't there there wasn't allowed the same range of of fantasy in in places like that car i mean you know the the the, the impoverished you know the, the idea is that poverty has 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 reached even their imaginations that literally mm-hmm. this is yeah. you know the extent to which they can imagine a better lives for themselves um and and briefly uh uh thirty thousand dollars in 1973 is uh it's it's about 175,000 dollars today so it's still not much how did you just know that offhand, Scout? <laughs> because I have to do stuff like this all the time. Uh-huh. And looking at, at at movies for the unloved, I have to figure out 
um, I have to figure out if if the budgets and the uh, box office actually meant something. Because I'm looking at like okay. in 1963, something made four million dollars. I was like, all right, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and and, I, and I think, you um, know, it it it, oh, it always kind of goes. It always goes back to, you know, you can roughly translate like what what those dollars and cents kind of translate out to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the film didn't have an impact bigger than what its budget was and, you know, right. uh, and how successful it was just based on, you know, the the raw numbers doesn't tell the, the whole story. So it's always it's always tricky to just be like, oh, well, that wasn't very much money back then. OK, well, but was it very much money for this kind of film? for oh, you know I mean, a, you a know a, a filmmaker yeah a, a filmmaker of 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 this in this area and something like that and you know y- you mention how they don't quite have the the film culture and and awareness of what it even means to to be filming a film and you know there's that sequence where they are like brian mentioned he's he's paying off the one person that he actually owes money to and in that sequence they kind of drive through a crowd and almost as soon as the crowd or as, as soon as that sequence they kind of drive through them i notice a lot of the people in in the background immediately turn and look at the camera and i was just like <laughs> oh yeah they don't they don't know not to do that and sure. and of course he's he's like fuck it like i'm i'm not they did so good in this one sequence more than likely that i'm not gonna be able to you know well, get it also- to go through the 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 looking at the camera thing i think that that's i mean i i would say this having seen his earlier work which is is even more sort of um aware of the machinery of filmmaking um he he appreciated moments like that those accidental cuz the cinema where people look um look into the lens they're aware that they're in a film there's a sequence in uh, uh i think it's Badu boy where they basically show you the filming of the sort of third act climactic chase sequence. They like, they show you the chase and then they show you how it was done. Um, you know, he, he mm. liked the idea that, you know, he was aware that he was one of the few people actually making this kind of art. You know, he was, at this point, Sam Bannon made, um, I want to say about three features and a couple of shorts. Um, by 1973, I think he'd already made Emitai and Mandabi and certainly Black Girl and the, and the first two shorts whose name I forget. But, um, you know, he was aware that he was breaking new ground and he was, he was discovering Senegal and its people on camera for, for some viewers was going to be the first time. Nobody had actually seen what it looked like when somebody from this part of the world turned the camera on themselves and, and, the people in the streets. I mean, it was hmm. revolutionary just to bring these images to France where so many people would simply reject them. You know, it's, it's little wonder that this film didn't travel, you know, the same. I mean, you think about <sighs> mean streets, mean streets is the same time as this. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the same ideas and theory. And these guys arrived at it simultaneously, you know, and, and and one of them became a classic and launched a career. And <laughs> Jabril didn't make another movie for something like almost fifteen years after this. Like yeah, mm. and, and 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 even still, his his later films didn't have the same reputation as this. You know, because there's just it, there wasn't the same care taken of him and his reputation. And there it's interesting to note too that uh, I, I so this seems like it opened in seventy three. 
at the Moscow Film Festival. And then, you know, a couple years later, then it seemed to play in Hungary. And then it didn't seem to come to the United States till 91. Like the first review I could find was... Uh, was from Canby in, in the New York Times in, in 91, just like for a, a limited right. run. So it's it's even interesting, it, and that it's not the least bit ironic that Scorsese is the one who brought it back into resurgence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, this stuff just, it's, it's insane to me too. Um, there's an anthology of um, uh, Stanley Kaufman's writing, I think it's called the... Uh, uh, Figures of light or fragments of light. I never remember which of the two F words. But anyway, you see him reviewing things uh, at the New York Film Festival in the 60s. That's where so many of his reviews came from. And the stuff that only just is making its way into theaters in New York from the world of world cinema. Um, world of world cinema. Nice. Elegant. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know. Stick and move. The, the, Stick and move. The, yeah, right. <laughs> they... Um, they uh, distri- distributors didn't really care. There was no sh- like shelf life in their head about this stuff. That the, that world cinema would sit and wait, basically. That they would get mm. their American and the British films and stuff like that out into the world as quickly as possible. But world cinema could wait, and this was true of everything. I mean, Polish and Japanese and Russian, all this stuff. I mean, you'd be very lucky to see something, you know, the same year it it was it was made back in the day. This stuff was just allowed to languish, and so many of this never made its way anywhere. I mean, Scorsese, again, you know, he did such uh, uh, dogged work to get something like uh, um, Yulen in front of audiences, and that was one of the closest, as, as I understand it, you know, w- one of the nearest New York premieres vis-a-vis its actual completion date of an African film um, because of the work he did to try to get it seen. Um, but again, imagine if these films didn't have a Scorsese championing them. Would we even know that they exist? Sure. Well, you it's know? interesting it's, because mm-hmm. I have to imagine that a lot of that comes down to the film culture of the the place that it was produced. Because, like, we have the French New Wave and stuff. You know, France is, I don't know if I would say protective, but proud maybe in a way of that and keeps it up. Likewise, uh, Russia does the same thing. But, you know, if you get someone who's producing something in a country where cinema isn't seen that way or maybe is yeah. like just so, you know, brutalized through a history of colonization that it can't create an economy that can support that, then it, it, becomes, it becomes even harder. Because instead of kind of sitting on top and, and bouncing around until finally someone from a, a country like America or, or somewhere in Europe that has a thriving film culture who wants to find these things looks over at it, mm-hmm. it sinks down because there's no one even where it's from to keep it up. And, yeah. And that becomes its own kind of problem. Um, if you're producing a particular kind of art in a place that has no value for said art, you have to hope that someone on the outside comes and look for you. But if you're not known as coming from a place that values that art, what are the odds that they're going to cast a glance in your direction? It's true. And and our, you know, shepherdship of uh, a lot of world cinema is uh, spotty at best. I mean, even as much as, you know, there's so much world cinema available on home video and, and you know, in any given New York theater right now, there will probably be at least one foreign film playing. You know what I mean? Not the Not the you know, the, the art houses and rep cinemas and stuff like that. Um, but we still have a long, long way to go. I mean, Idrissa Idrago died, and I don't think I saw a single 
piece of news about that. And this was two months ago. Not even. It was a month ago that this happened. And I didn't know about it until the freaking Oscar in Memorial reel. Like, <laughs> we still have so much further to go before we actually have earned the incredible work, you know, for no money whatsoever that took place in places like Burkina Faso and Senegal. You know, there's just... It's... It's... It's wild. I mean, again, it's, 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 we still wait for the one, we wait for the rye cooters of the world to bring us the culture that we're not seeing. Um, mm. and it's just, I, it's, it's a shame that there isn't a better mechanism whereby if you know that this stuff is out there, why can't we see it? This has always been the thing that drives me crazy about the, the, the piracy conversation. Like, if you, whatever, if you are trying to steal Batman versus Superman, yeah, you should go to prison. But if you're trying to find <laughs> movies from Niger, or Iran that you know you can't find anywhere else. How in the world is anybody supposed to tell you that you're not allowed to pirate these things? It's not like we can just watch them. They're not on freaking Hulu. You know, right. like I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's like I when I so so I'll just run through this real quick. I feel like there's a a trajectory that people will go through when they start getting into movies. First of all, you go to see whatever the hell's at the cinema. Right. Then you start paying attention to the Oscars, and you're like, ooh, these movies must be important. Then you realize that oftentimes <laughs> the Oscars suck. So then you start looking at the Cannes Film Festival and working yep. your way through the Palme d'Or winners. And then that's kind of the point where you start breaking off and realizing what you like. Because you're like, oh, Darden Brothers, I should check out more stuff from, uh, from like Belgium. Or you say, oh, Michael Haneckeh, like same basic idea. Or you, you start diffusing yourself to the other ends of the world. You know, you mm. find out one day that there's a movie... That um, was the predecessor to the Magnificent Seven. So you pick up Seven Samurai and you're like, oh, this, <laughs> this guy's got some stuff going on. And it's, it, it's, it's hard because you come to a certain <laughs> point where you work your way through, I'm not going to call it the easy stuff, but the easy to acquire <laughs> stuff. Sure. And then you hear about, oh, did you know that that guy was actually influenced by this super obscure movie that you've never heard of and that is not available on anything but Betamax? Right. And you're like, well, shit, now what do I do? And yeah, yeah, that's what part where the that's around the part where you start to pirate stuff. And yeah, it's true. And I'm and glad funny. that we now have stuff like Mubi and like Filmstruck that that actually like go out of their way to try to find this stuff that you might not yeah. be able to find on physical media. And They're film crate diggers. I'm sorry? They're like crate diggers for film. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And the beautiful thing, too, is yeah. that they're also finding... I mean, uh, bless Filmstruck for this, that, that they have the best available version of these things. That, you know, that, that, that they have mm -hmm. the beautiful, restored versions of, you know, the Alexander McKendrick or, or, or Jibril or whomever. It's, it's nice to know that there are people sort of not settling for what's available, that they're, that they're really going to do the legwork to find you the film as it would have, as it should have been seen in the first place. If you can't watch it on a 35 millimeter print, and let's face it, you can't. Right. <laughs> you know, then it's nice to know that, 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 that they do care, that they do give a shit, that the movies look the way that they're supposed to. Yeah, especially for a movie like this, where the the kind of the grain and the color and everything is so yes important. integral, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you you don't you don't really appreciate how sort of magisterial and and you know uh, crazy good and and beautiful this is if the colors aren't intact, if you can't see the sky, if you can't get the you know the richness of the skin tones, if you can't get the yellow of the ship. And the you know just the 
blue of the ocean and everything. I mean, you know, this is a carefully lit film. This was a very, very intricately designed thing. And if you don't get the full effect of that, then you're not watching the movie. I feel like I'm now in that stupid TCM letterbox ad right now. <laughs> well, it's they funny, call like, it a letterbox because it's like a mail slot. <laughs> Lord. Um, That's my Michael so, Mann. So, what was I going to say? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, and this is, this is a whole other conversation, but this movie is one of those things that kind of proves how important like a transfer is. And sure. I just think about all the times I've gone to a theater where they've kept the diffuser on for the 3D conversion oh my God, on a yeah. like, 2D film. Or like just just like, I don't know, like watching the Avengers on your iPhone within like the bright sun. And it's just like, it doesn't really matter. And I just wonder yeah. if, I wonder if there's going to be a point where someone in the future is like, we've gotten a new restoration of the Avengers and we've oh made God, sure that the stop. colors are You're, correct because uh, like, it just feels like <laughs> that's not g- important. Like, obviously there is a cinematographer who is, I think, I think even for the Avengers, he's like a really good one. Isn't he Seamus McGarvey? It's Seamus McGarvey. Yeah. yeah. Not who, that it matters. Those movies are just a freaking blur. Right. But that's <laughs> the thing. Like he is a great cinematographer who has done great work in, in good movies. And, and in that movie, it really just seems to be like, we need Iron Man to be red. Yeah, right. <laughs> we need the aliens to be green. Everything else is flat and whatever. But we just need yeah. people to be able to easily visually distinguish, like, who is hitting whom with what. And, <laughs> and like, in this movie, it's just so... It's so vitally important that all those things are correct. And it's... Yeah. Well, I just think... Um, I, I think even... Uh, yes, you could take cheap shots in Avengers, and I'm I'm happy to do that. But yeah. I, I think it, it's also like I guess it gets into a larger conversation then about like uh, as Scout was saying about the difficulty of you know so many of these films not coming here, and like this film weirdly is I, I love that I watched it, but it also reveals how poor this system is and how it lacks, you know, a sense of actual democracy and Mm. how even now as we are trying to be like good historians and canonizers in the present, we are still falling into the same holes that we always have. Like there's just something, it's something, it's a very strange realization, you know, coming to these conversations about ambassadors and you can take that into, you know, I, I was thinking, for, for instance, about someone like M.I.A., uh, the musician, sure, you know, sure. who is who's, you know, her, made her entire mission statement trying to be remixing all of these different cultures into one, you know, synthesized, interspersed whole. So you have people like that who are generally bringing things that wouldn't come here, but then you also you you do have like the critics as well, you know who. And, some are obviously responsible for distribution and trying to get those things out there, but right. the conversation still is uh, stubborn. <laughs> yeah, sure. a, a lot of critics are bullheaded. I mean, you can see it even with the conversations about representation, and I'm not going to get into a thing about gatekeeping. That's not what I'm <laughs> trying to do here, because oh, that's a whole other conversation. But like, I, I think that that is what uh, this... This conversation also brings to light for me here, too, is that, like, we are going in in circles. And, and, like, it is great, Brian, that, like, 
it's pretty easy to watch most Haneke films, for instance, at this point. Yeah. But it, it is really weird that we are striving to constantly be better, but we still are to make it like into a regional conversation. We're bringing up the same countries over and over again. I mean, you think of specifically Africa, the last the last like uh, modern African film that got a huge amount of buzz was uh, Timbuktu. That's true. Uh, which mm-hmm. I, I think was I think it was Sporty. nominated for an Academy Award. Was, it was four years ago. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. 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 Absolutely. I'm just saying that. No. Yeah, that's that's that 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 is to your point exactly. That it's that it, you're yeah. you're right. That that was the last thing, and that was that was actual years ago. <laughs> I have a question. This this kind of reaches out in a broad way. So let's say you're a fan of films or, or books or hell even paintings. Do you ha- do you feel like you have a an obligation to look for art in those mediums from all over the world, or do you feel like it it can be a responsible choice to like kind of dabble for a bit, but then decide to focus on a certain region? Because I remember as a child when I thought that the only authors in human history were Charles Dickens, Mark Twain, and Leo Tolstoy, and then you're going to say God, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, uh, God. Uh, the best authors are John, Paul, Mark. Um, anyway, so I thought you were talking about the Beatles there for a sec. That's right, John, Paul, Mark, George, Ringo. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it, but there came a point when I was like, "Oh shit!" Like every fucking country on Earth for thousands of years has had people writing books. And as a, as a child who loved to read, this at first seemed like a gift. Because I would never run out. <laughs> and then as I got older and realized I was going to die one day, it became a, a horrible depression. Because I knew that I would never be able to read everything that I was probably supposed to. So I kind of started mm-hmm. to restrict myself to certain places just so I could feel like I was accomplishing more. So I was like, all right, yeah, we got obviously, you know, you got your Americans and your British people. Um, but I'm also a fan of like South American and Russian. And so I'm going to stick with that for now. And I'm going to burn my way through all of that. And then if something else pops up like really hardcore in the culture and the zeitgeist, I'm going to just work my way through this before I try to do something else. I but think, do you well, I think, think that you I, have I, to go and like look at the entire world constantly? I think, Scout, if, if, if I can jump in real quick. I, by, I wanna, by all I wanna, means. Yeah, I want to I want to touch on something that that conversation can't revolve without noting the differences of medium and how a film versus a a book can be written. And you can get the full immersive version of a book versus, you know, when when we watch a movie like this or or anything else from from countries that don't have access to our infrastructure of of millions of dollars and things like that they start to push against the boundaries right um and so i think it's it's so difficult because so many uh as we were mentioning i think it was scout that was mentioning it it's so difficult to sit someone down in front of a film that doesn't necessarily look good 
right? Mm. And and that's all tied into the budget. That's all tied into the infrastructure of of what that you know where that country is in terms of film production and and how they can kind of make that that reality sing. And so I just always go back to the idea of of novels are the perfect medium for just about everything because. Mm-hmm. there is no film budget right like like you can have a thousand page book and it didn't really cost you all that much more right and versus a 500 page novel um what you end up doing is you end up uh being limited in genre you know it's it's it, imagine this uh, the same filmmaker having that kind of, you know, it's it's that upper trajectory. Like, how how do you even measure success? How are you successful? And then you start to go back into can they even fathom science fiction? What is, what does science fiction look to them? You know, look like to them? And so, yeah, but I'm I think asking it's, about I'm asking I, I, about specifically I, I, like should do you do you feel a moral obligation to look at things from every country? I, and I, I was I was going to kind of come back to that. Um, that was the question. I, I, okay, no, I, <laughs> sure. I, I think what Bill is saying is I, I think what Bill is saying is productive as well. Though I mean, uh, those influences. Uh, that's the problem with rhetorical questions because uh, logistics obviously change things. But you know, like I, I don't know. I think what Bill is saying is productive as well. <laughs> I'll jump in on the moral front and say yes. Yes, I do. I think that if you love the medium, I think that you, I mean, you owe it to yourself to understand. What's, what's, whoa, Is there what's a going on sound? in the Yeah. <laughs> what's going oh, on sorry, in the background? Yeah, there are coins being dropped in uh, in my apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> People walking by and throwing money in your tip jar as you podcast out on the streets. <laughs> Currently homeless. Oh, Currently homeless. If you guys could help out, that'd be great. Go to my Patreon. Patreon That's right. Patreon. That's exactly right. Um, okay. I, I, I honestly, I think that, you know, in much the same way that on film Twitter a couple of days ago, to return to everybody's least favorite subject, um, there, was a, there was a discussion about... Um, uh, uh, there was a discussion about whether or not one should be, you know, well-versed in film history if you're writing about film. Mm-hmm. My question is, how did you even come to want to write about film if indeed you don't have an, is- an interest in film history? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that... You know, I, f- I, do, I do genuinely believe that this is... If this is something you're interested in, I think that you should... You should want to learn more. You should want... To see things from all over the world, you should want to see everybody's definition of cinema, if for no other reason than to figure out whether or not it lines up with yours and it's anything you're interested in seeing. If you see four or five films from Senegal or Morocco or Romania and you notice a stylistic overarching pattern or or a set of uh, thematic concerns or metaphors or something like that and you decide it's not for you then sure, then you don't necessarily have to keep dragging yourself back to that well. I know that people... But at the same time, I don't know, like, you know, if... if uh, I'm speaking for myself here, I'm not the kind of critic who is asked to go to Cannes every year, so I don't see a huge swath of world cinema. I don't go to Berlin, I don't go to Venice, I don't go to Locarno, nobody sends me, that's perfectly fine, <laughs> but it's 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 a matter of, you know, so our consumption is limited to what we can find ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, and right now that's at a historical high. There is more available to us than there ever has been. And I just can't imagine not wanting to see more of it and to learn more and to see what happens with a camera on the smallest island on planet Earth. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, it, it, it just, I don't know. You get a rich understanding of people through the films that they make and the films that they like. And, you know, whether it's Australia or, or, you know, the Philippines or something, you know, the, the, I don't know. It, it, I can't go to these places. I don't have any money. So it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's just rewarding and, and, and important to me to see films from artists in the smallest corners of the world and to hear from other people and to see movies made by people who have nothing in common with me other than the same shared love of pointing a camera at things i i don't i don't know maybe framing it as a moral issue is 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 i don't know maybe that gets us into a weird area but for 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 me i do think that People who call themselves cinephiles have an obligation to try to find as much varied cinema as possible, because otherwise your definition of it is never going to be what it could. And you'll never, I don't know, you'll never experience what so many people are capable of of doing. And I don't know, I just, I've been so wowed and completely bowled over by what, I mean, to go back to Bill's point about genre, I mean, you know, what what a sci-fi movie from... Brazil looks like you know what a what mm-hmm. a what a vampire movie from uh, Pakistan looks like you know this mm-hmm. stuff is all out there and it's all interesting if nothing else to see what everybody did with the same films that we watched you know whether we were filmmakers growing up at the same time or they all watched the same Dracula Frankenstein Universal monsters they took that and did mm. something that no one else on earth would have done Sure, they they looked at the creature from the Black Lagoon and said that creature should definitely fuck that girl. Like, <laughs> that creature fucks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Bill. Um, it's, yeah, it's, Bill it's, just it's, had it's, the perfect it's, illustration of the point we're trying to make. Watch World Cinema podcast. Yes. <laughs> it's it, it's so interesting because you know we live in this time where even on film Twitter there was this discussion that broke out a couple of years ago and maybe it's still kind of ongoing loosely because of the Netflixes of the world and things like that where it's like the the idealized version of all of this is that we can see it in a cinema, right? We we can see it with other people that actually turn off their fucking phone and stop talking and, right. and pay attention to what's on screen. And so this whole notion of, oh, if it doesn't play in a theater, then it's not a real movie, just completely starts to fall to the wayside when you start to look at world cinema and you start to look at the options to consume that over here in North America. And it's like, um, I don't live in New York or LA. So the Mm -hmm. likelihood that I could ever see any of these movies on a big screen with a bunch of other people uh, is, is like zero, you know? And so then you start to look at, okay, I got to look at it on my computer. Do I have any way to, you know, is it on Filmstruck? Is it on movie? Is it on like an app? No, there's, it's not on a fucking app. You got to pirate that shit and then like (laughs) stream it over maybe. And so all of, all of this idea of like the strictures of cinema start to break away when you have to get out of that those bounds and that's that was kind of my roundabout point of books not having this kind of stricture of 
look, it's words on a page. Like right. you either can or cannot read that. Right. Exactly. There's, well, there's nothing the bigger of, uh, translation because if you, if you get uh, of a, course, yeah, a poor the translation Bible. is going to fuck. fuck a book. The up Bible. There you go. Everyone's favorite <laughs> sure. book. Yeah. Um, no, because yeah. I the, the, this is this is sort of in the same vein, so I'll go with it. Um, I I am very finicky about what Russian translations I read mm-hmm. because there are certain people who anglicize things way too much, and um, mm-hmm. I recently was actually you know talking about things that you can find anywhere. I was recently looking to buy a new Bible because <laughs> I because um, it's Easter. Well, it's going to be Easter. It's currently the season of Lent. And I was like, you know what? I don't have. I don't have a Bible. And so then I was like, looking at different translations of the Bible, which you'd think would be the easiest thing on earth because everyone <laughs> talks about the Bible and it's oh, it's the most bought book in history. There's so many f- fucking translations of the Bible, um, <laughs> and you you have to come down to like, you know, is it going to be a word for word? Is it going to be a basic idea, or is it going to be both mixed together? And Give me the most fire and brimstone. <laughs> yeah, I want the one that sounds like it's being read by like Morgan Freeman in a dark room. So screaming at you. <laughs> so so the thing is, it's the same. It's the same idea. It's it's like okay, well, I can't read Russian. I can't see Tukibuki in thirty-five millimeter. So like, what's the best way to see it still? And I think right. that luckily. Mm. This this used to be a much harder conversation because I remember even when I saw Wake in Fright, I had a oh, screener sure. mm. and I watched it on my laptop. Right. And I was just deeply concerned because my laptop has a light setting and sure. there was like a glare on the screen. But now <laughs> I have like a 55 inch, you know, 4K television and a, a super fast broadband connection. And I can sort of assume that if the motion smoothing is off, that I'm getting as close to good as I can get without the 35 millimeter projection. And mm-hmm. it it's, you know, like back in the day though, it was like, all right, I'm going to download this and I'm going to hope that I didn't accidentally just download an episode of neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. It's, it's interesting how much this stuff has changed. But like when I was in, when I was in college, I was very lucky because I had a thousand resources to watch movies even still, mm-hmm. there was stuff that I couldn't find. I mean, you know, I could go to... I had my pick of amazing 35mm rep houses, which unfortunately mostly have all switched over to digital now. But I could see Grindhouse at the Brattle. I could see Arthouse at the Coolidge Corner. I could see Classics at the Harvard Film Archive. And I could see new movies basically everywhere. Um, and it was uh, it was insane, the wealth of options I had. But even still, and even with the Boston Public Library and its enormous collection of DVDs, there was just stuff that wasn't to be found anywhere. I mean, if you wanted to watch Valerio Zerlini's Black Jesus, you were out of luck. You that kind of thing. You know, like there are, there there's 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 always going to be the thing that you want that nobody has. So you have to settle for what you can find in many cases VHS rips to go back to Jabril. The 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 first the 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 only way I believe that you can watch a lot of this stuff is in VHS rips or if you can find the tape itself. I don't know where the hell you'd do that now, but I mean Little Girl Who Sold the Sun, Hyenas and LeFranc are all films I saw either on VHS tapes at Emerson College or on VHS rips that I stole from the internet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I almost because- stole um, a Kino Lorber copy of last year at Marion Batting College. Yeah, there you go. Because there was nowhere else to get it. And I was just right. like, yeah, they, who else is checking this out at the library? <laughs> 
careful because the last guy who said that was George Romero taking out that Tales of Hoffman print, and the other guy was Martin Scorsese. <laughs> this is true. Um, I do want to, so we should probably wrap up soon. So I would like to just talk briefly about this film as as though it were any other narrative film and uh, ask, uh, what did you think of the ending? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, poetic and sad, exactly as it should be. It's, uh, it's like the end of Breathless. Yeah, I find it interesting that, that his, and I guess, I mean, this is my interpretation of it, right? Um, this is my translation. Uh, this is the, the, the Bill Graham translation. Um, I find it interesting. According to Bill Graham. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I, I find it so interesting that his, his whole relation to this motorcycle via the the goat's head, I guess that it, it is it, it, that is what it is, right? It's not because I noticed the goat had smaller. This is this is me being anal, but I noticed the goat had significantly smaller horns than what it a, appears. I think it's an ox. Hmm. Okay, so so it is it is one of the larger creatures that we see at the beginning of the film, not the one that we see sacrificed on like the sheep pan. I oh no, yeah, that's a goat that they're killing on the sh- on the on the sheet metal. Yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, the the oxen that we keep seeing murdered um, in the in the in the last act that he keeps cutting to is more he's running down the street. Yeah, that's the I believe the source of the horns that he's got with. Okay. Him. Okay. Okay. Um. Anyways, so you know, it's it's funny to me that he he is so tied to that that his his whole goal throughout all of this film is to leave for for Paris, leave for Paris, leave for Paris, and he even gets his girlfriend on the ship and he he realizes that he's so tied to this thing that he has to go run and go all the way back and try and track it down which which is just mind-boggling that he thinks that he can just run down the street and find out where it is you know it's right. it's like it's like you know uh, before cell phones before cameras and you know everything like that is like uh how how do you plan on finding this thing oh did you see my goat horn or my right. my you know say, my motorcycle it's a fairly sure. noticeable thing you know it's sure a yeah but he had no idea where they left the bike <laughs> yeah um. I'm, I'm sure i'm sure more people like notice that than than he probably realizes right you know it's probably one of those things where where he thinks he's kind of incognito but everybody else is just like oh that fucking asshole yeah i know him it's like after they <laughs> steal the crate and he's just like got his face wrap on and he's right, 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 right and right. the crate is sticking out of the taxi and he's Riding a horned motorcycle, and it's like, yep, totally cool. <laughs> yep, that's him. Yep. Oh, it's yep. funny. The, the 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 missing the boat thing is kind of a a, a, a sort of a, a tradition in in French uh, crime stories. I think about like the mm-hmm. incredible Marcel Carnet film uh, Port of Shadows, which has a very similar ending. It's it's that fatalistic poetic thing, which again more evidence that this film is wrapped up in the French influence that he that he uses something so specifically from a set of French uh, novels mm-hmm. and, and and movies. This idea of missing the boat somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's a little uh, bit uh, it's a little bit like Casablanca in that way as well. There you go. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. But of course, because well, Casablanca is American. I mean, e- <laughs> even to the point where the the film ends on Fiend, right? It's just like yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> yep, I kind of love that. That uh, speaking as well of that scene where that 
bizarre person crashes. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's all the caveman. He's I was going to say caveman, but I didn't know yeah. that was the right terminology. Yeah. Well, they, they that dress him like one. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the beautiful thing also about this is that Jabril's sure. idea of early man is not black. Yeah. Um, it has quite, a lighter yeah. complexion. Um, I was fascinated by that. Um, mm-hmm. So wait, are we really oh, supposed to believe it, that that's a caveman then? Like, I don't know. What or the hell is it a crazy person? I think he's I think a crazy, a crazy, person. crazy tree person. I don't know. He was speaking. All right. Anyways, the birds were. Anyways, crazy back, tree though, person. <laughs> yeah. See, that's why I think it's meant to just be, you know, that sort of flight of fantasy. Okay. It's a caveman who talks to birds. I just it's so one he of crashes. Where like, if I were to see this about a guy who lives in Iowa, I'd be like, okay, that's a flight of fancy thing. But like, I just become so. What's the word? Um insecure when i'm watching a film from another country because i'm like maybe that's just something i don't know about sure i have that with some iranian films (laughs) sure because i don't know whether things are 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 meant to be a a commentary or a right or or just adhering to social mores but uh, okay so what yeah, I briefly sorry. wanted to mention about the crash, I'm sorry, I, before I forget this stupid thought, Go ahead. Go um, ahead. I like that last scene, how uh, how the crash is happening and how he is, you know, inconsolable standing over the motorcycle. But I like how that kind of usual French romance is is kind of shattered immediately as everybody kind of disperses and he's left there alone so it it Mm. is it still has its own form of poetry but it's not something so uh yeah again like uh romantic like like i feel like in a french new wave film i could see people holding around him but just the fact that they disperse and go back to their life so quickly Mm -hmm. yeah they've got a lot of shit to do (laughs) really struck me as something different And, and finally that last Two things about like the sound design slash song. One, that song called um, "Love Is Fleeting, But Rejection Lasts a Lifetime," which is about right. Uh, right. his his lover leaving him, is yeah. just like a gorgeously petty song. But the thing I liked perhaps even more than that is the bizarre like swallowing sound mix of mm. when Maury is running to the motorcycle, and it's like this. Just like jumble of like diegetic sound and uh, tribal rhythms and like uh, postmodernist like you know uh, you know music concrete style rhythms like it, it, it's just like this wonderful sequence. Um, but yeah, and they had I just done wanted something to say similar that. Uh, like during one of the first scenes of the movie too, where like the laughter of a woman mixed with like the sound of the surf. Yes, yes. this weird soundscape. But yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it, I I really liked the way this ended. I was I was curious cuz it seemed to be going pretty well for them. Like they <laughs> they, they seemed to really be yeah. making it happen. And then just seeing him like turn around and run and go back to find that bike and her kind of stranded on this boat with these insufferable French people. Um, <laughs> it was, well, that's exactly it. It's 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 the two it's the bike forcated 
you know, vision of uh, success. And the ones mm-hmm. it's diffused completely and you're left by yourself with nothing but, you know, the decaying evidence of your homeland in your lap. And in the other, you're stuck with your colonizer having to listen to their fucking horrifying, f- fatuous conversation. What's that line in Last of the Mohicans? The French with their Latinate voluptuousness have not the character for war. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, now I need to watch Last of the Mohicans again. That's a great one. Just did a video essay on it on my Patreon. I need to watch that new cut. I need to find out if that's anywhere. Wasn't there an extended cut that just played in New York oh, there of Last of the Mohicans? Something like that. I don't know if it's extended or if he just messed around with a couple of the same things the way he likes to. I was about um, to say, didn't he do that for um, Black Hat? Black Hat. Sure did. I still I have that on my three DVR. Cuts of Black Hat now. Jesus. Oh, man. Look, I like it's, Black Hat, so I'm down to watch whatever. Black Hat's awesome. Out. Black Hat is one of the best <laughs> movies ever made. <laughs> All right, so welcome Quite. to the Black Hat cast. <laughs> we were going to end right there, but uh, now we've got to talk about Black Hat for three hours. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, I think that uh, we've we've come to a natural stopping point. Does anyone have any final kind of punctuation marks they want to put on this? Any final thoughts about this movie or our meandering conversation about world cinema in general. I did want to point out that I found it curious that, you know, this film, the direct relation of success is also tied to what kind of clothing you wear. And, you know, Mm. watching it on Filmstruck, part of the intro is, you know, that Scorsese obviously founded the World Cinema Foundation. Uh, What was that, in 2007 or something like that? And then it mentions... Uh, proud partners with like I, I can't remember the the two that made me laugh, but I believe it was Giorgio Armani and uh, someone. Cartier, yeah, Cartier, Cartier and it's just it's just like <laughs> oh, awesome, amazing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Well, that's I mean that's that's uh, it always makes me laugh the 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 you know the roster of of uh, sponsors at the New York Film Festival every year where it's just like and now Timbuktu brought to you by Stella Artois. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, yeah. I, I, you can't get away without mentioning the chalice glass, of course. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's my right. Favorite, that's that the, was my favorite thing about going to Landmark Cinema in Washington, D.C. It was just like, all right, I'm going to watch a Stella Artois commercial, and then I'm going right. to see a movie. Ladies and <laughs> yeah. gentlemen, Jean-Pierre J&A for Stella Artois. Um, yeah. I, I will say... Um, uh, as a as a final note, uh, when you're done with this, and if you have uh, listened to this and don't want to watch Tuki Boogie, then I can't help you. But uh, when you've when you've seen it, uh, you also need to watch as much uh, of Jabril Diabambetti's other films, um, and also you got to seek out uh, Wend Cooney and Yelen or uh, Yelene or however you uh, say that, uh, and uh, Tilay, translated to the Law. Um, and uh, all of uh, Sam Ben. I mean, there's there, that's that's that you know. Take steps to watch more African cinema. It's out there and it's wonderful. And if we don't you know talk about it more, then this stuff is just not gonna hang out in the canon so often. I mean, you think about every fucking YouTube channel talking about Stanley Kubrick and Wes Anderson for the 450th time, and there isn't a single freaking video about any of these things. Like, we need to... I wish the conversation were broader, and the only way we can do that is to watch the movies and talk about them. So, have a viewing party. Invite your friends. Watch It's a weird cannibalism thing where, like, these people get popular, and then people only talk about them, because you're not trying to influence Mm -hmm. the culture, you're just trying to get hits. Exactly. Which is... It's true. Yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, It's aggravating. Um... Speaking of translations, I, so I, when I was looking up 
a um, <laughs> review of this movie. Uh, apparently, this means uh, the hyena's journey. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I'm always curious as to what what makes a movie either get translated in the title or not translated in the title. Well, hyenas, I think, must have had some sort of uh, significance to him because it was a uh, it was also the title of his 1992 yeah. film. Um, which is a terrific, terrific uh, weirdo revenge movie. Um, again, it's the same. I'm it's in. The same, <laughs> it's, the, it's the basic. It's the same basic idea that we were talking about this entire time, which is the only way that you can actually get revenge on people is to come back and flaunt your lifestyle in his face. And in this, a woman comes back to her hometown and makes life miserable for the man who wronged her. He like she like takes away all of his avenues of comfort. By buying all this stuff up in town, it's uh, it's really awesome, and it was it's the kind of thing that like I I could see like Betty Davis doing in the forties, um, <laughs> and uh, but I think that hyenas I, hyenas must mean it must have meaning, you know, vis a vis the you know the sort of uh, townies in uh, Dakar or, or or somewhere else in Senegal that uh, I think we are we are deprived of because we are not from there. Yeah, it makes me, it's weird, it's weird. It makes me think of the 2014 film Hyena. Oh, God. Sure, <laughs> just like, directed by Gerald Johnson, right? Yeah. Saw that at TIFF. That is a movie. Um, it exists. Can't take yeah. that away from it. Nope. It will forever be a movie that was made. So, yeah, it's it's a weird thing. Like, there's this concept in the world, you know, you could see it in Lion King, of a hyena as, like, kind of a, a laughing mongrel that's just waiting for the the alpha predators to get done with its thing and then it can pick clean what it can well they're the ultimate scavengers right yeah right but it's it's usually not in a good way uh, like well i I say scavenger but i mean more more like the the ultimate survivors in some way yeah well i mean i think it makes sense in the context of this where they're you know they're trying to make money through simple things they he steals from a from a street you know uh the guy with the three card trick Mm -hmm. um you know what I mean? I think that that very much speaks to the nature of their cobbling together their means of escape. Um, you know, my, they're not my, doing it. The sorry, go, go my, ahead. No, my thing with the three card trick is anytime I see someone do a three card trick and they got a deck of cards, other cards, I'm like, sir, sir, why do you, why do you need the other cards in this in this scenario? So, so I'm always immediately suspicious of of the three card trick when I'm just like, no. Cards no, get why bent, do you got broken, that other? They get wet. You know, you got to swap them out. Oh, okay, but do you just have nothing? Do you just have nothing but aces and and queens? Like, what's going on in that card deck? <laughs> I want I want to look. So, um, what was yeah. I going to say? I just think it's I think it's interesting because I like you hear the name Tuki Buki and you're like, oh, okay, that's a foreign title, and here's what the movie's about. But I feel like if I'd heard <laughs> the hyena's journey, I would have um, I would have started off in a less empathetic place just because like hmm. i feel like in america we have the concept of a hyena is like not being a good guy yeah it's a malevolent figure yeah you know? it's and it's not like like i guess like you know the kind of hyena they're describing here is kind of how we're talking about foxes sure it's like sure. You that fox in your chicken coop but you know foxes are also pretty fucking cool like no one really <laughs> gives shit to a fox but like our hyena would I, be more like an opossum I think that that's probably a huge part of why nobody calls it the hyena's journey yeah. because I think Tuki Buki investigate because like yeah Tuki Buki remains the more enigmatic and uh, jocular 
uh, title, and I think it's it's more appropriate in a way because the film does toe the line between the sort of menacing and strange and the joyous and uh, you know um, uh, uh, absurd uh, sly. <laughs> yeah, excellent yeah. use of the word jocular. Um, Thank you. So that's our review of Tuki Buki and our verbal essay on the perils of world cinema and streaming culture, and we've hit a lot. We've hit a lot. We hope you yes. enjoyed it. Um, let me remind everyone that we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. Um, check out Mubi. It's a great place to go if you want to watch a movie and not get stuck in what I like to call the Fraser hole, where you really want to watch something new. Whoa, you really, Brad. You really mean you're going to do it, but then you accidentally you wind click up married to Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> Speaking of Kelsey Grammer, Storks, great movie. Not on Mubi, however. Um, for your free 30-day trial of movie, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. You'll be able to watch movie on your phone where you can download items, uh, your PC, laptop, and, of course, your smart TV, where movie has one of the best user interfaces available on the market. So, check it also out. Also, Trash Humpers right now. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I love that film. I love that film. Fucking <laughs> Harmony Korean. Um... <laughs> That's his best one. Better than Spring Breakers? What? Yep, sorry. Nah. Kids? No, (laughs) he only wrote that. Anyway, um, mubi.com slash filmstage. Also, uh, we've talked about Patreon a few times. Go to patreon.com slash the filmstage show and uh, give us your money. Help us to create more great episodes like this. Um, And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's about that. So, gentlemen, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time. Uh, Scout, you are our guest. Why don't we start with you? Very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, again, I am at uh, patreon.com slash honorszombie. Get in on that. Um, uh, I have a extensive Vimeo page. You can find all of my video work and my feature films there. Um, if you want to start somewhere, I'd recommend Eam, E-Y-A-M. So I'm very proud of that film. Uh, and then uh, you can find me on Twitter at honors underscore zombie. All right. Michael Snydell. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell, where I'll be talking about all the pirating I'm going to do. <laughs> uh, and, that is right. Uh, we, we implicitly endorsed pirating on this episode. So if you <laughs> get caught, did. feel free to implicate us. <laughs> I don't think there's anything Wait, implicit no. about it. I think it was pretty explicit. <laughs> Shut your mouth, Scout. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. Yeah, what what was I gonna say? Oh shit. Okay. Yeah, Death of Stalin is more wide, so I will again uh, plug that I interviewed Armando Anucci for hey. the film stage. So you can read that right now if you would like. All right, Bill Graham. You can find my translation of the Bible on Twitter, Cable <laughs> BFG. <laughs> You can also find me on our Patreon Slack channel, just mixing it up, having a bunch of fun. I'm looking forward to going out and watching uh, Unsane soon, because apparently making a film on an iPhone is reinvigorating one of our best living filmmakers. Hmm. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowe and my personal site, DearFilm.net. Of course, my writing and uh, all these podcasts are available at filmstage.com. And um, yeah, that's about it for me. You, know, you can find me on Letterboxd. I actually, I had like a mental breakdown the other day when I realized that I had like not done Letterboxd for like three months. And so I started going through all my social media to try to figure out what days I'd watch what movies. 
Uh, that was a that was a weird night for me. Anyway, so letterbox.com slash Brian J. Rowan. And uh, that is all. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for joining us. Next week, we will be talking about Ready Player One. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, between then right. and now, we'll also probably be trying to review another classic movie that we uh, we have that we owe you all of you fine people. It's going to be Clueless. So yeah. check out that. That's going to be more fun than Ready Player One. Anyway, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next week. Et c'est aussi le charme et l'élégance et l'âme de la France, tout cela, mais c'est Paris. Paris, Paris.